My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. The Pharisees approached Jesus and asked, Is it lawful for a husband to divorce his wife? They were testing him. He said to them in reply, What did Moses command you? They replied, Moses permitted a husband to write a bill of divorce and dismiss her. But Jesus told them, Because of the hardness of your hearts, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. In the house, the disciples again questioned Jesus about this. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And people were bringing children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he became indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not prevent them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Men, I say to you, whoever does not accept the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. Then he embraced them and blessed them, placing his hands on them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most challenging things for me in my first weeks in college was taking one of our mandatory courses, the Introduction to Philosophy. Just hearing the area of study philosophy was intimidating. Add to the fact that our professor was a Catholic priest who was also the head of the philosophy department. That was already strike two going in on my first day. And quite shockingly, that first meeting, rather than simply handing out the the syllabus, going through it and dismissing it like practically every other class had done to that point, this professor actually kept us the entire hour. (laughs) The nerve of him. Anyway, he ended up talking to us. He was strolling around the classroom asking us questions about what did you know about this field of study, what did you think the course was about, and started asking even philosophical questions. And up until that point, I really didn't know much about who Socrates was, but unlike the guy next to me, I didn't know it wasn't pronounced Socrates, so I figured I was at least in a better position than he was. But after that first hour, Father O'Connor kept going around and asking questions, and he would stop just in front of you, wouldn't even like ask you to raise your hands, he would just put you right on the spot and ask you a question. And you could tell he was just this brilliant man, a dynamic professor. And it was one of the most bizarre experiences for me because truth be told, I was never a great student. I'd always struggled and had to work pretty hard just to keep my head above water academically through high school. So I'm pretty anxious as starting out as a college student, somewhat convinced I was going to fail. But at the same time, this This first hour, one of my first college courses, I can only describe as feeling like my brain was playing gymnastics for the entire hour. Despite having attention deficit disorder, 
I was completely focused. I was enthralled in all that back and forth, all the, the Q&A and that dialogue that went on for that entire hour. I couldn't believe an hour had gone by. I knew Father O'Connor was going to be one of my favorite professors like there and then. And then he concludes saying, this is going to be an exciting journey that we're all going to be on as he handed out the syllabuses that laid out everything for the whole semester. All the assignments, all the papers, the quizzes, the exams, debates, these critical thinking exercises, which were basically like having a mini oral exam in front of your entire class with the professor for five minutes that he videotaped so that you can go back and review the car crash later. Anyway, he laid out a point system for every one of these assignments. So like a weekly quiz could be like 10 points, a term paper 30, an exam 50, and so on. And then he had a guide on the side that gave you for the entire semester the total amount of points you needed for what grade. So like an A would be like 500 points and so forth. My eyes focused on what was the minimum I needed to get a C. I figured that was high enough to pass and admirable enough that my parents would not give me too much crap about it. I mean, this was a, this was a tough course. Those weekly assignments were challenging. I remember one of the times having to go up for a critical thinking exercise, my one-on-one -on -one with Father Connor and his question right out of the gate, what would you say if I said there's no God, that God does not exist? And completely blanking for the minute and then just saying, well, for one thing, you're in the wrong business for sure, Father. <laughs> Cheap laugh. It got me about 20 seconds to try to come up with something a little bit more substantive. And anyway, but as the semester moved on and the points were accumulating, I was actually doing pretty well. I started to look forward to the class, and he, Father O'Connor really motivated me to study and work hard. And when I survived the midterm, and did more than survive, I actually did pretty well, that C seemed like a lock. And I remember like, somehow having this conversation with Father O'Connor after that midterm and explaining this, this sense of freedom I had, that I could pretty much coast now at that point till the end of the semester and get that C that I had anticipated and expected. And I remember he just kind of chuckled and he said, I didn't know you were aiming so low. Here I thought you wanted to be a philosopher, that you wanted to be a true thinker. I'm like, what are you kidding? I'm like, Father, I, I'm neither of those things. And he just stopped and he's like, you could have fooled me. And it was a pivotal defining moment for me as an 18-year-old freshman. And it completely changed my perspective from that point on where I started to simply start to work as hard as I could and as best as I could rather than get hung up on what particular grade I thought I was going to get. How often do we sell ourselves short? That we diminish ourselves? That we tell ourselves how difficult something in life is to achieve? So don't even try. Allow ourselves to believe a false narrative about our abilities have these, these lies in our head about our potential that we constantly yield to. Even speaking words of defeat where we think or we say that it's best not to get our hopes up or expect too much. In some ways, that's what's going on with the Pharisees in today's back and forth with Jesus. Oftentimes when this gospel is proclaimed, we get this laser-like focus on, on Jesus' rejection of divorce. And this isn't meant to discount the importance of what Jesus teaches on the importance of marriage, 
and how divorce is something that, that God hates, as he's described the saying in the, from the mouth of the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament. But you know what? A, a majority of people who've suffered through a divorce hate it as well. They hate that it happened. They hate why it happened. They hate the hurt and the pain and the blame that comes from it. And knowing Jesus as I hope I do, the last thing I can imagine is that he's using this as an opportunity to make divorced people feel worse about themselves and their situations. And that's why it's good to get to the root of what this debate is really all about. And that is the difference between striving for holiness or simply asking, what are the minimum requirements to appease God and keep in his good graces? What's the least we need to do to pass the course of life? Because the key to this whole gospel is a focus on what troubles Jesus the most. The hardness of one's heart. The hardness of one's heart in response to God's hopes and his dreams and his desires for each and every one of us. The Pharisees had forgotten or ignored what was the importance and the ideal of marriage that we heard so beautifully in those poetic verses from that first reading in Genesis. That God created marriage as a way to demonstrate his desire that humanity never has to suffer from aloneness. For us to see in the union of a man and a woman becoming a husband and a wife, this dynamic relationship of sacrifice and service to each other that's so powerful that the love they share allows them to participate in the divine work of creating life, which is also known as having children. And that's hard. That's tough work. And you don't have to believe the celibate priest saying this. Ask any couple whether they're married a few months or a few decades. It's a roller coaster of ups and downs. It's hardly predictable. And as they remain faithful to each other in their covenant, as they recognize how Jesus is made real and visible through these imperfect people who are striving for holiness in this unique vocation, they experience new dimensions of love that could never have been imagined on their wedding day. The Pharisees, though, in this instance, they're trying to test Jesus, as the gospel puts it. In reality, they're trying to embarrass him. They're trying to put him in the middle of yet another debate that was going on at the time. John the Baptist had preached against divorce, So if Jesus had agreed with the Pharisees, with what had already been accepted as the norm at the time for the Jews, that it was permissible, Jesus would have basically agreed it was okay, John having been executed. And if Jesus disagreed with that thought, they could say, see, he's rejecting Moses. But these Jewish leaders don't realize how twisted their understanding of what Moses had said had become. That Moses allowed in some cases for the health and safety of people, that they needed some protection, that he said divorce was permitted, had now become an extreme saying, Moses says it's okay. Permission does not equal approval. But as they demonstrate with this one example, when people are suffering from hardness of heart, things can go from bad to worse. You can interpret a lot of things in a very variety of different ways. And even bigger difficulties are at stake. And that's why this is more than just about marriage and divorce. What's at the heart of this is that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day and age, 
weren't considering God's plan as something to strive for, as something that needs to be nourished and encouraged, and to talk about how as a community they could support husbands and wives in that covenant. How could they see the blessing of children as precisely that, a blessing? That they could be honest and say, how hard is this? And so how do we help couples as they try to be attentive to God's law and his vision? The religious authorities instead had accepted the premise it's in this lie that it's not possible for anybody. They bought into that false narrative that said, we have to have a plan for if or rather when people fail. Rather than say, what do we have to do to help people avoid that painful situation? The hardness of their hearts made them believe more in themselves than in God's desire for us to strive, to strive and encourage each other to strive, to go beyond what we think is possible for us. How true is that in so many other things when it comes to our faith lives? Because you can easily swap out divorce for any number of things that people struggle with and find how this idea of what is the minimum we need to do affect people in all kinds of ways. Jesus, is it lawful to miss Mass on Sunday? Okay, well, if you're sick, obviously you're not obligated to go to Mass. Well, how sick? Well, if it's COVID, well, that's probably a bad example. If you have COVID, you're not allowed to look at anybody. So that's not a good example. (laughs) If it's a flu, all right, you shouldn't go to Mass if you have the flu. Well, what if it's bronchitis and you're on an antibiotic and it's not contagious anymore? What if it's just that I'm physically exhausted from the week? And so on. Jesus, is it permissible for me to talk about this person behind their back because they really annoy me? What if it's just venting to one friend who I I really trust and I just need to get this off my chest? Jesus, how drunk is too drunk? (laughs) Jesus, is it really cheating if everybody's doing it? Whatever the situation As human beings who are very much aware of our brokenness and our weaknesses, especially as we're living in a world that is hell-bent, literally and figuratively, on trying to remove God and his word and his law and his commands out of even consideration for people, let alone trying to help one another to remain responsive to his his high call of being a disciple. We're surrounded by our own modern-day Pharisees who are constantly looking for loopholes And telling people, you're doing good enough. We've accepted that as our premise. And we've allowed the devil to continue to sow doubt and encourage us just to lighten up, do the best you can, rather than pushing ourselves to strive for holiness. Striving for holiness is difficult. And every one of us will ultimately fail. We're going to encounter failure along the way. (laughs) Spoiler alert, it's going to happen. It happens to me. It's going to happen to all of us. And that's why the the second part of the gospel, which seems initially disconnected from the first, is so important. It seems disjointed to go from this debate about divorce, where some, so all of a sudden these disciples are annoyed about these children and say, this is a distraction for Jesus, to the more important discussion going on. But they're they're coupled together for a reason, because it allows Jesus to highlight again the importance and the root of the debate, and to go back to basics. And that's when he talks about the importance of being childlike. One of the reasons Jesus constantly highlights the importance of being childlike isn't because children are sinless, 
Most parents can explain that they're not. <laughs> they're very much not so. But children are oftentimes more transparent. They're more willing to ask for help. They're more willing to admit when they've messed up. And children are, for good and for bad, very attentive to what their parents say about them. And they can allow their lives to be defined by that and try to live in response to that. So what does God say about us? That he knows everything about us, including the numbers of hairs we have on our head, as dwindling for some of us as that may be. That every good gift we have comes from his hand. That we are his cherished possession. That he knit us within our mother's wombs. That if we seek him with all our hearts, we will find him. Those are just a few verses. There's hundreds of them from the Old and New Testament. That's just scratching the surface of what our lovingly heavenly father says to us, says to you. In light of that, this gospel is more than Jesus just rejecting divorce and raising the dignity of children. Jesus is speaking of something far greater, of far greater importance for every one of us. And that's how responsive are we to this call to holiness? How does his love for us change our identity where we strive to live as God's sons and daughters rather than treating him as a professor whose class that we're simply trying to pass.